Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Speed Technologies, the Ask Noah Show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalaya. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. Joining me is my co-host, Mr. Steve Evans. Welcome in, sir. Good evening from a uh, chilly South Dakota. So last week was uh, was a bit, you know, we got to it because we had the senator on and we didn't want to waste any of his time and wanted to give the the attention to the issue at hand. But I'm I'm back from Linux Fest Northwest and I have to say it was it was a fun time. So I, I had an opportunity, Steve, to get in front of other people that are smarter than me and hang out and like in a way that kind of recharges my technical batteries you and i were kind of talking about that on friday so one of the things that stood out to me we went out and it was a smaller conference right it was just one day of presentations but i'll tell you really what that drove home for me was there was the ability to just stay in one place and have all the presenters come come to you and that kind of had the effect of attending talks I wouldn't ordinarily wouldn't ordinarily go to. So I ha- had an opportunity to sit through a Nextcloud presentation by Brent and that has got me into using Nextcloud a little bit more. He said something that kind of st- stuck with me for like the last week and that was this idea of Nextcloud being the one central place to rule all of your other apps. And I it it brings me back to a time where when before virtualization and and before remote work was really a thing, there was a project called Altio. And the whole idea of Altio was you could install all of these little applications in this web UI and then you could run them. So you only had to maintain that one environment. You'd log into that environment and then all of your applications were there. And they had little systems set up so you could run Windows applications or Linux applications. And I remember thinking, like, how cool that would be. And then, you know, it kind of died off. And I don't know where it is today, but it is certainly not the way the world has has gone. But Nextcloud seems like that kind of might be the way the world is going. And it was it drew my attention to this idea of the Nextcloud all-in-one image. Now, there's been some discussion in our chat room and in, and in Mumble uh, about the, the prescribed way to install Nextcloud. And Steve, a few weeks ago, you were talking about how there are some performance tweaking that has to be done to Nextcloud to really make it stand up in production. I understand you had a chance to just peek a little bit at what the all-in-one image is. What were your thoughts? So it definitely falls in line with kind of what what we were chatting about, where there's a Docker Compose file with seven different images that they've stood up, including Redis database for caching and a bunch of other stuff, where it makes complete sense, right? If you're standing up enterprise infrastructure, you're not going to walk into an enterprise and be like, here's a container. Hopefully you can put 5,000 people on it. Um, you know, you have to make it more robust, especially because at least to my knowledge, uh, Nextcloud was not designed to be able to have seven different containers running together to be the same single instance, right? So it doesn't mm-hmm. scale horizontally. So if, if an application doesn't scale horizontally, you have to put in a reasonable amount of 
system engineering to make sure that the caching works, the database is handled properly. You know, if you need a PHP accelerator that you've got one of those, all of that sort of stuff, which doesn't come in the community image, which is what a lot of people are taking as the next cloud prescribed way to do an installation. Right. So this all-in-one image has those individual containers broken out. And so it's ready for a bit more of a robust deployment. So if you haven't checked that out, I'd invite you to do so. The second thing that stood out to me was a presentation about the Apple Silicon Max and how Fedora has become a first-class citizen to provide a Linux desktop that you can run on the Apple M1s. Now, what I thought was interesting, you know, there was the initial work that was done with the kernel and then how a bunch or excuse me, how Fedora set out to say, you know, there's all of these little polishes that need to be done. And frankly, we've just never had ARM processors fast enough to really push this to its limits. And so here's some of the things that break when you get there and they were able to go through and fix all of that. And it, it, it's to the point that there was a guy in sitting in the presentation and he had an Apple M1 Mac and they put this command up on the screen that you just kind of copy and paste. And he copy and pastes it in his, his terminal and Within like two minutes, he's just smiling ear, you know, ear to ear. And I, I look at what's up and he goes, oh, I just did it. And it worked. I mean, that's just amazing. And there, there was Fedora splashed onto his Mac. And I'll tell you why I don't, you know, at first I was like, you know, if you want to be the one that supports the, the hierarchy, that'll be the day I spend my money on a machine where I have to go beg the permission of the manufacturer to let me install what I want. Like, it's just not my cup of tea, but the thing that I think is really fantastic in talking with the guys that gave the presentation afterwards, I was asking them, you know, what did that process look like? And, and was Apple supportive of the process? They said, you know, nobody was really, they didn't really make a big thing about this. But the reality was we used to have to wrap the entire thing inside of a Mac application so that Apple would see it and say, yep, that's a legit Mac app. And then it would open it up and run it. They quietly removed that requirement without telling anybody. They just saw what the Asahi Linux team was doing and went, here you go. And then you could run without having to wrap it inside of a Mac app. And to me, what I took away from that exchange was maybe there is this, you know, thing of this walled garden where if you pay homage to the organization and give them copious amounts of money, they will give you a machine, which if they bless what you're doing, you'll be allowed to do. But at least the people that are working there, at least the geeks inside of the company look and go, we don't want to make e-waste and trash 10 years from now. So when our company inevitably stops supporting this device, at least these guys can go and do something with it. You're going to see that come up a couple of times throughout the rest of this episode where those sorts of efforts are quietly paying off. So I just want to give some credit to where credit is due. The kind of work that I can't imagine I can't imagine if somebody wanted to go, they went to their boss and said, yeah, I want to work. What do you want to work on? Well, I want to fix the Linux kernel so it works on M1 Macs. Why? Why? Anybody that wants to run Linux is not going to be buying an M1 Mac. And But we should. We should do it. It should be able to run on anything. And I think you're going to see why that's advantageous from RISC-V to ARM to x86 and where some of these strides are going to pay off. The other thing, the last thing that drew my attention was I had... Again, being just in a room with other people that are doing stuff, you learn about their geek projects. And so one of the things that I got the opportunity to to hear about and experience a little bit was the idea of voice and home assistant, the next generation of voice and home assistant. And the, Chris over Jupiter Broadcasting did a really great job sitting down with Polis from 
home assistant and talking a little bit about what they're doing with uh, these uh, this these recent developments with voice and it's it's a fantastic conversation so I'll we'll have links for you in the show notes you can check it out um, but I think this is going to be the future of the ability to control stuff if we want to do it locally Steve I understand that <laughs> you had been going back and forth trying to give Zigbee a fair shot but I understand that its days may be numbered and it may be getting the death sentence yeah it's uh so just as a quick recap, I'm on my sixth controller. So I've had I've had a Sonoff wireless to Zigbee. I know, I know. I had a Texas instrument. I had a Conbi. I had uh, a Hub Z. I have a Sonoff 3.0, and I can't remember what the sixth one was uh, way back when. I've flipped between ZHA and Zigbee to MQTT, depending on which one that I had and whether there was support. And uh, I was recently on uh, ZHA. So after the last meltdown, which was on Zigbee to MQTT, I went and bought the Sonoff stick and it is not currently supported in Zigbee to MQTT. So I went with straight up uh, ZHA and everything was going fine for about three or four months. And then a couple of days ago, I'd say five days ago, 7.30 in the morning, everything's fine. 8.30 Everything just completely melts down. That's Zigbee. Stuff is just not working. I'm getting pinged by Home Assistant all over the place saying, hey, like devices are not responding. And I'm thinking, like, what's going on here? Like, did I, like, is something really terribly wrong? So I went around and I found that there's still an active issue on GitHub for this. There's plenty of people in the forums talking about this and so on. I won't belabor the point, but I did my due diligence. I tried to troubleshoot this. I moved the Zigbee channel. I moved my 2.4 gigahertz uh, Wi-Fi channel as well. I got a giant USB cable and moved it as far as I thought was reasonable away from my home assistant box. I did all that sort of stuff and just finally gave up. Um, I, I completely burned the ZHA and any associated things like I actually went into home assistant and started deleting the database for <laughs> for Zigbee stuff. You will be gone. Uh, you will not mess up again. You will not be yep. here to mess up again. Yep. Uh, and I I wiped the stick. I also upgraded the I upgraded the firmware on the Sonoff uh, 3.0 Zigbee controller. And then I tried ZHA again. It worked for about three hours and then did the exact same thing. And I was like, that's it. You know, I can't take this anymore. This is the end. Um, I moved over to Zigbee to MQTT on uh, basically I I stood up Home Assistant and I brought over a backup that didn't have like all of my Zigbee stuff in it. Mm -hmm. I just excluded that. So I wouldn't say it's a fresh install because whatever cruft came behind with the backup, but um, I'm running unsupported on Zigbee to, to MQTT and expecting things to die in a fire probably soonish since I'm on an unsupported stick. But uh, that's where we're at. And so now the, as the Zigbee stuff dies or I need, need stuff, I'm going a different direction. For so sure. here, here's where I'm at in my life. So everybody that all of my non how, how do I say this politely? All of my all of my nerd friends who are not necessarily open source first, they've all gone 
they're all into Z-Wave and all sorts of fancy, complicated, commercially things that may or may not use cloud and all all sorts of things. So I got that coming in in one ear. Then I've got you in the other year and you i think you've been automating longer than anybody else that i've personally talked to and so you've tried all of the purest of open source things and you've kind of settled on z-wave and esp32s right yeah z-wave and uh i really like the shelly devices and the honestly yeah um i have a ton of the esp devices that i built myself um but i i recently built the chicken coop and I just put Shelly's in there instead of doing an ESP of my own and then trying to make a case. It's just like, I don't know, this is, this is just as cost effective for me at this point. Mm -hmm. And turned out like, I really like the, the Shelly firmware. I was surprised because previously I've had a bunch of Shelly's and I just flashed them with uh, either ESP home or Tasmoda and uh, that's fine. But I found that I really liked the firmware and I've started to, they suckered me and I went and bought, one of these add-on boards so like the the shelly pluses whether it's a one plus or a two plus whatever mm-hmm. they have an expansion port and you basically get this little expansion for sensors and it just clips on the back of it and then it gives you screw terminals for three or four different uh three to five different sensors depending on what you're putting on it you just screw them in and honestly i like it and so i'll probably continue going that route and and because Shelly has a long history of just, hey, here's the header pins. Go ahead and flash it. Like, See, I feel safe in that. The other thing that appeals to me about Shelly is it looks like, this is a silly metric, and I know that, but it looks like they're building for a professional audience, right? When they put in wired Ethernet jacks and they, they build it on DIN rails so that you can put it into a box, it tells me somebody is thinking about some of the applications where, because, you know, the, the thing is where I came from, I came from the commercial world where we did automation at a commercial level in the Crestron Lutron world, and then I suck that into my house. And this is long before there was ever such a thing as, you know, open source automation. Back then it was X, you know, X10, which is essentially a glorified science project or the stuff that actually worked. And, and those are my two, two choices. And today there's like a million choices and they all have pros and cons. The thing I like about the ESP32s, they're simple. I understand them. They get us updates directly from home assistant. They're, they're flashable. All of that stuff I really like. Things I don't like, I'm just not a fan of a bunch of stuff on my network. I just like the idea of putting particularly utility stuff that I'm going to put in the wall that's going to stay there. I want to put it there. I want it to last for 10 years. I don't want to think about it. I don't want to touch it. I don't want to monkey with it. I don't want to update it. I don't want to connect it every time I change my SSI. I just want to put it in. I want it to stay there. And at the same time, it like it seems like all of the stuff that is quote-unquote professional or better is just on the whole, less supported from the open source side. And then, then I get back to like, well, maybe I should just cycle through the technology and you know, just accept that eh, it'll last a few years and then you throw it out and then build a new one. Or maybe I'll just get pleasantly surprised and 10 years down the road, I'll be like, son of a gun, they're still updating and still supporting and still works. So I'll just toss this at you. Um, you said, oh, I want to, you know, put it in my wall and forget about it and yes. not have to worry about like SSIDs and stuff like that. Right. Um, I, so I, I, actually changed my fireplace into something that's now controlled by home assistant by ripping out the thermostat and replacing it with a Shelly device and uh, a temperature sensor. See, uh, And I put it in the wall because that's where the original thermostat is. Now, coming back to what you were talking about, wanting to forget about it. 
it has Bluetooth that you can leave turned on. So if you need to, you can, you can get at the device via Bluetooth um, so that you don't have to open up the wall again. Okay. Should you need to like go tinker with it. But if I, but here's the other thing with the Shelly's, if I just hardwired them, then in theory, it's got its connection back to the network and I'm good anyway. Right. Yeah. But I, so I went with one that doesn't have an ethernet jack because um, if you remember the school room and all those concrete walls and how much of a pain oh, it was yeah. going to be to run ethernet cable, oh, uh, totally. that's where that is. No, hundred so. percent. No, it definitely makes sense. And I'm glad they make mo- both options, but I'm just, I'm, I'm sitting there. I'm giving the, I'm giving, giving the Innovelli Z-Waves a try as my first dip into thing new, I guess. We'll see how it goes and if it bites me, but the Zigbee, Zigbee days are numbered. How about your, how about your chicken? Your chicken coop, how's that coming along? Yeah, so um, along the idea of, of automating things. So I have, I set up this, I read about a, a watering system where if you have flowing water, it's supposed to never freeze. That's, I've, I've read a bunch of places like this. And so I set that up and uh, here in South Dakota, we've frozen over, you know, my 55 gallon drums, which I was always like, yeah, I'll empty them tomorrow. They're now just solid 55 gallons of ice. Um, <laughs> except for my chicken coop one because of this uh, currently flowing. But my wife comes along and is like, you know, it'd be really nice if the chickens had warm water to drink. And so <laughs> I ended up going out and, and looking at these thermo, like the thermostatically controlled water heaters and they all heat to like 70 or 100 degrees. And like, I'm not trying to boil the chickens. I just want it to be like above freezing for them. Yeah. So I went and got another Shelly and i i hacked together a an outside outlet that i put the shelly in and essentially the the outside outlet has a, a temperature it's got a temperature like a thermometer that you drop in the water coming out the the active um like it's called an in-use outlet it's coming out the in-use outlet and going into the chicken water and it it is controlling whether or not the the heater in the like the water heater runs fantastic but it's keeping it at least warm enough that they're able to drink it. Yeah. I mean, it's not frozen over and uh, we're, we're still in the process of deciding how warm the water should be for them. You want to get into some feedback, Steve? Let's do it. Our first email comes in from Chris. Chris writes in and says, Hi, Noah and Steve. A bit behind listening to the show, but curious on something you mentioned when you described your colo journey. Why the Pi KVM instead of using the Dell iDRAC? FYI, I work for a company that has a number of Dell R7X series, R65X series boxes running converged Ubuntu KVM ZFS with mixed Rust and SSD storage, and it's been a great platform. We run them in our own DCs, colos, and on customer sites as part of the public safety critical communication solutions. Keep up the great podcast. It's one of my go-tos for the commute and walking the dog. Thanks, Chris. So a couple things. So I'll start by saying all of the built-in management, out-of-band management utilities, that are available that at least work inside of the web browser are all acceptable like they work but you ask why the pi kvm over the over the built-in idrac idrac is okay but there's it definitely leaves some things to be desired so the first thing is it ha- gives you every option under the sun when 90 percent of the time what i'm looking for is i just want to access the console of the server and i want to do something and if i'm going to make a change i'm going to the uefi bios and i'm going to do that so so that's one reason the other thing is though you want into you run into weird strange things so for example 
we bought secondhand servers. They got in, we got them down to the data center. And one of the first things when we went to set up iDRAC was, oh, it says that this one doesn't have an iDRAC license. Well, how do you buy an iDRAC license for, a, uh, for an eight-year-old server? Who do I contact? And, you know, so then we're reaching out and we have a really, we're Dell partners. So we have a relationship with them. So it's not impossible to do, but it's just extra phone calls and extra things. And then it occurs to me that inevitably when we replace that box in six months or a year or two years or however long it ends up lasting before we outgrow it, then I get to play that game all over again. So the idea of the Pi KVM or specifically the Bly KVM, which is essentially a Chinese version where they've ripped off the, they've taken the Pi KVM, they've assembled it for you. They include all the little connectors so you can do the ATX pins and then they ship it. The advantage there is we only have to do that one time and we put it in the data center and now everybody is trained on how to use it and set up and has credentials and all the things and all of that works and we get a new computer, we just slide it in, plug the USB cable in, plug the display cable in and Bob's your uncle, we're back in business and I don't have to re rejigger everything. So is iDRAC is great if you have it up and set up and it's working. Again, as long as it works in the browser, don't be afraid of it. It'll work just fine. Uh, but, you know, it's just, I like to have a, a, a consistent thing. And, you know, if I'm honest with yourself, the geek in me was like, well, I kind of want to give this a shot because, like, I think there's a very real opportunity for us to serve people when somebody says, hey, I can't make this happen or this doesn't work on my machine. If we could say, hey, that little box that you have, yeah, go grab the little orange box and plug the USB cable in the display thing and the network thing and wait a second and I'll jump on and I'll help you. And then you could do something as intense as reinstall the entire operating system. Uh, Steve, your thoughts on iDRAC and or ILO? I like the ILO. Uh, not a big fan of the iDRAC. Um, and uh, yeah, I like the Pi KVM. I have a couple of them. I don't know that I would stick them on a server that already had one of those management features, but um, they're good for supplementing things that don't have built-in IPMI sort of stuff. William writes, or excuse me, Josh writes in and says, hey guys, I'm curious why i3 and not Sway. Is it because you're having an NVIDIA GPU on your machine or are you just not comfortable switching to Wayland yet? There is an Ubuntu Sway Remix as well as a Fedora Spin, both of which are better distros to have real package managers unlike Endeavor, which is based on Arch Linux, which is a horrible operating system. Why? Because the majority of package maintainers care for is whether is not the package is successful compiles. There's no responsibility even for making sure the package even successfully installs. And this is the official packages hosted on the core repository, not extra. So uh, uh, as far as why I3 not Sway, uh, it was literally as simple as I was going through the installer in Endeavor OS and uh, I3 was the tiling window manager that I could check the box and it showed up. Uh, it, this really was got born out of I was using Terminator to get some stuff done and I really enjoyed having the tiled terminals and I thought to myself, you know, it'd be great is if I could put a web browser right here so I could have the two terminals and I thought, man, I should just use the tiling window manager and try it. And I started using it at VM and then I got addicted and now I got sucked in and now it's practically taken over my life. But I, I'm not, a, I wouldn't be opposed to giving Sway a, a, a shot, although now I've gotten into a specific key map and I've got it all mapped out. So I, I guess that'd have to be a change. Steve, I struggle a bit with this last part. So there's no real package manager, unlike Endeavor, which is based on Arch Linux was a terrible, which is a horrible operating system because the majority of package maintainers care whether or not the package successfully compiles. I have to be honest with you. I have my share, my fair share of complaints with Arch and with Endeavor specifically, but not being able to get packages is not one of them. Yeah. You know what? Um, I'm sure people have, 
their trouble with Arch, just like I've had my trouble with Ubuntu or whatever. Everybody's, you know, they, they say your mileage may vary for a reason. But I will say this. I would absolutely rip Arch off my desktop in a heartbeat if it gave me problems, right? Like I need to be able to do my work and not play around with my desktop because this is <laughs> this is my work machine for which I contact and connect with clients. And if it didn't work and it if it was breaking my itself uh, a quarter as much as what my Zigbee network breaks, it would be gone in a heartbeat. Yeah, you just couldn't function. I like I said, I've not had, I've, I've not shared your experience with problems with getting packages to installer packages to be there. Everything I've wanted is there. The only thing I struggle with Arch every once in a while is, so for example, the YubiKey, I, this is something I just went through again. So it, it, the library files for the PKCS 11 provider aren't, they're in a certain place on Ubuntu. They're in a certain place in Red Hat. They're in a certain place in, uh, you know, in, in. Debian, there's like all of these other distros, it puts the PKCS 11 provider in one place. Arch puts it in a different place. It's not the end of the world. It's fine. Like eventually I can figure it out, but it just leads to that moment where I go to stick my YubiKey in for the first time and I go to authenticate and it can't see my YubiKey. And I think to myself, well, why can't it see my YubiKey? But the reality is it's, it's always been my mistake. It hasn't been a problem of the operating system. It's just me learning its idiosyncrasies. And if I'm honest with you, that exists with, as Steve pointed out, every distro, but I'll, I, I, I will add sway to my list of things to, to dig in. And I, I appreciate you writing in. William writes in and says, hi, no one, Steve, I'm faced with a situation that has me perplexed. I bought a hike vision, three DNR model DS two CD two eleven two F. It's an IP camera. And I made the mistake of not doing a little research into this camera. $25 looked like a great deal to me, but if I'd done my research, I would have discovered that this camera is only viewable in Internet Explorer. I know Microsoft Edge has a compatibility mode for that. But this feature is not available for Linux, and this has just been dead, a dead end for me. Have you experienced with any of these cameras in a Linux environment? And are there solutions for me to view the camera, the feed of this camera? If there are no solutions for me, do you have a recommendation of a similar camera that I can use? I need to be able to have web browser access, and I need to, for each camera to have its own storage with an SD card. I don't have space for a DVR system at home. I know you both recommend access cameras. I would agree with that, but I can't find any access cameras in my budget. There's not much. I need three cameras. My current budget is about $60 to $80 per camera, and I hope that's not realistic. So first things first, definitely not realistic. There's no such thing as an unrealistic budget. We just have to be more creative of what we're looking for. So depending on what you, what you, what you want out of a camera, you could absolutely get an access camera for less. I mean, it's going to be an older camera, but you can get an access camera for, for less than uh, $60. In fact, I'm looking at a P3225 Mark II for 58 bucks on eBay right now. And uh, essentially, uh, you're just going to go for a slightly older camera and it might have slightly less resolution. So, so that'd be one option. Now, if you wanted to use that Hike Vision camera, Steve and I pulled the documentation for that camera and it definitely supports uh, an RTSP stream, meaning that you should be able to pull that stream into something else and view it. So you could get a Raspberry Pi and view it on a on Home Assistant. You could get a Raspberry Pi and you could view it on something like Frigate. There's also a project called Motion Eye that is a very basic, easy way to get it up and running. So I, I think any of those would would get you to where you need to be, Steve. Your thoughts if you were him and you just wanted a simple way to view this camera. Yeah, I, I 
probably would take a poke to see what I could plug into it with RTSP. Although, uh, I'm in the fortunate position where I would look at something and be like, this is $30 and I've burned how many hours and toss it at like, put mm. it back up on eBay and go, go get something that I know works. Like, like you, um, I went to eBay for access cameras and I got one for $95. That's a pan tilt zoom. That's 1080p. So the, the PTZ stuff is more expensive. Mm -hmm. uh, so you, it, I, all I bring that up to say is if I was able to get a couple of those for 95 bucks, you can get something just as good without the PTZ functionality, probably for 60 to $80 for sure. So I found, while we were talking, I found a M3005. So these are I, these are the ones I was talking about. I bought a box of them, of 10 of them, and it was like 140 bucks. So these are these are 1080p cameras. Uh, they're, they're two megapixel, but they're, uh, they're $23, $29 a piece. So, I mean, that's well within your budget. And... Every access camera I've ever worked on from their the, the $29 used one that you buy off of eBay to the $4,000 super fancy quad head, blah, blah, blah. It's all the same thing. It's a web, it's an HTML web UI. You log into it. You can view the feed. It puts out an H.264, H.265, or MJPEG if you want, stream, and you pull it back into whatever you want. So you can view it. You can pull it into VLC, whatever. So I would invite you to check that out. But yeah, if you absolutely want to make use of the of the hike vision camera, just add a, uh, add an NVR of sorts, not necessarily to do recording. You don't have to do, you don't have to record anything, but you can just use it as a way to get the RTSP stream into an easy digestible web UI. That'll be a, a lot more modern than the hike vision. will. and you give your users one consistent interface to get to. And then if you do add access cameras or anything else, they won't know the difference. It all just kind of shows up in one place for them. Our fourth email comes in from, I hope I'm pronouncing this right, Araya. Araya writes in and says, Hi, Noah and Steve. I've got a Nextcloud instance in my attic that I got set up with Docker Compose. I backed it up with a script that shuts down Nextcloud, creates a MySQL dump file, copies the MySQL dump file, and the data config folders over with our clone to a network drive, Blackblaze. One day, I messed up my installation and I tried to restore, but I couldn't get the MySQL dump file to restore to the database properly. I ended up recreating the Nextcloud container and uploading my files from a from the client. I'd like to simplify my backup and backup all the Nextcloud violence, volumes, app, and database to their entirety, possibly with Restic. I've heard that copying the database file can cause corruptions, and that would be an issue if I ran Docker Compose down first. Will I run into permissions issues? Any other recommended way of backing up or storing Nextcloud and particularly popular self-hosted Dockers like Jellyfin? Thanks for the show, Aaron. So I, I guess let me start with this before we dig into his his thoughts on or his specific questions on what might work. How do you back up your next cloud and is it working well for you? So I keep my database, the actual database file on a persistent volume, right? Like so it lives on the NAS and that's. Yeah, that's just where it lives. So I also don't run it in a container. We've talked about this before. I treat this because for us, it is production. I know that we're just a little family in the middle of nowhere, but for us, it's important. So I treat it like production. It has its critical data is not stored on the box that runs files, uh, including, you know, whatever you upload to it. There has been one time that I can remember that the database was not, the database dump did not work for me in this situation. Cause again, I'm treat like it's being treated as a database server, just like you would any other 
and you follow if if you do that you can follow mysql or MariaDBs or whoever's guide to doing a proper database backup and not have to worry about like did it work properly or is the you know is it a container thing you know you don't need to worry about that mm -hmm. having said that for me the most important stuff is the actual data not the database file so at the end of the day like if i just simply had to go and re like re-import everything uh, you know it's just a matter of putting it in its files and pointing the next cloud client at it and saying go sync so as long as you still have your files that's really what the most important part is for me the technically correct answer uh i, I think if you want to do the database backups then follow what steve says and you know go get the go look at the documentation and 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 the the manufacturer the supporter of that database will have a best practice for you. One of the things that we've walked clients through doing is when they don't have the necessarily the technical expertise to dig in and back up the individual components, or they're not comfortable automating that. The other thing you can do is back. If, if you're running it in a VM, back up the VM and then you're backing up everything, the database, the config, the setup, the entire thing. And that's one it's it's not it's not a great solution because a you're writing the the delta every single time of of that vm and the other part problem is it's really not following best practice from the standpoint that you're not teaching yourself how to get to the most important bits you're mostly relying on hey there's a magic thing here and i have it however I would say that relying on the magic thing is maybe one step better than waking up one day and going, oh, geez, I didn't have a backup at all, or I didn't realize that I didn't have a backup. That's even worse. Um, so if it gets you to a place of stability that you can work yourself up from, that's probably all the better. But correct me if I'm wrong, Steve, as far as the database backing up really shouldn't matter if he's running it in a container or out of a container, the database should be in, in its place regardless, right? Yep. As long as you're following the the recommended way from the, uh, from the database provider. Now, some databases, for example, actually ask you to do like stop the database and run, run different commands against it and stuff like that. If you're running a database in a container, you can't actually stop it without stopping the container. However, most database tools have the ability to do an online dump, which should still work. Sleuth writes in and says, I have a friend that's looking to get into Starlink. What are some of the things that they should know about before they get into it? They're in a very rural area and they already plan on mounting it to the roof. They also want to turn it off at night. What's the best way for them to do that? So I would tell you, I would say I have Starlink at my, at my house and at my house, it runs as a secondary interconnection. I also have, uh, you know, cable. When I travel, Starlink has become my internet in a suitcase and I take it everywhere. And I have never had a problem getting it to connect. I know that people have said, you know, you can't be under tree coverage or you can't be under this. I personally haven't had an issue. It seems to connect every time for me. It is not perfect internet. It drops, uh, I would say in a 24 hour period, it might drop once or twice for a little bit. And when I say a little bit, I mean seconds, not minutes. But I have, when the internet's gone on at our house, switched over to Starlink and then I'll go a day or two and I'll forget that I've done it. And I'll come back like a week later and then go, oh, right, I forgot to switch back to, to cable. And I just, I forget it's there. Starlink actually gives me faster internet than my home cable provider does. So I think all of those things are great. The only thing I don't like about Starlink, so the first generation, 
it was literally an RJ45 at the end of the cable. And you plugged it in with a standard PoE injector and it powered up and powered itself and did all the magic things. And you got a WAN connection at the other side. Now they have this little router thing that you have to use and you can put it into a bypass mode and you can buy an external adapter to get a wired connection. But they really want you to use the app to store. And it's just, it's just more. So I don't know. It's okay. And if you don't have any other option, it's definitely better than not having internet. I also have some questions how long Musk dollars are going to be able to continue to fund the thing and if it's going to be around forever. But the flip side of that is, you know, Amazon and other companies are getting into it. So I guess that would be my immediate takeaway. And so far as I know, Steve, you're just cable. You you have no Starlink. Yeah, I do not have Starlink. Tiny writes in and says, I'm looking into deployments of OKD or OpenShift, but I'm worried about losing standard Kubernetes function. Is there anything that uses OKD that takes away besides choosing a lower level components? Will it override certain changes if I interact using the standard Kubernetes API to PFSense overriding configs outside of the config.xml? So, Steve, this is literally what you do day in and day out. What say you? So OpenShift is a Kubernetes, a downstream Kubernetes distribution. That means... The full Kubernetes API is still there. You can still interact with the entire cluster with kubectl and completely forget that you're running OpenShift if you so choose. To give you a slightly extended answer, you have to understand that Kubernetes is extended by something called a CRD or custom resource definition. And this is a way for a an individual or a company to extend the API that listens inside of your Kubernetes cluster. What OpenShift has done has created a bunch of CRDs to help make things easier. So extending does not mean that there is nothing there. I'll give you an example. Um, Kubernetes has something called ingress now. The ingress is meant for getting traffic into your pods. That's just, you know, seems Mm self-explanatory. But in the early days of Kubernetes, Ingress wasn't really a thing. You had to bring your own networking and figure out how do I do this? How do I route traffic to the right pods and all the rest of that sort of stuff? It was kind of, it was complicated. And so one of the, I guess, selling points of OpenShift was we came along and and created a CRD called a route. And the route is exactly what it sounds like. It is a method by which you get traffic into the pods. And so we created this CRD, which essentially did a bunch of automation in the background that allowed networking to flow into the pods. Today, both routes and ingress can be used in the same cluster, just like a namespace and a project. Kubernetes has namespaces. OpenShift tends to rely on something called a project, but you can create both of them, and sometimes it is standard practice to do so. So that's the long-winded answer of saying, Everything that was in Kubernetes is still there and you can still use it exactly as you want to, should you choose to. If you want more information, you can check out OKD or OpenShift. We'd love to hear back from you. Again, this is is literally what Steve does every day. Um, And we appreciate you writing in to the Ask Noah Show. Uh, Coming in via the questions bot, Marlin, you can tag the questions bot at questions colon linux delta.com in the matrix room geeklab.ninja micah pendleton asks what are your thoughts on the security of signal is it truly private i saw a signal server is somewhere i believe to be in regards to video calling steve are you a signal user not anymore uh 
when they dropped the SMS support, that was the that was the primary function. I know only four or five people that are on Signal, and you know their app just automatically uh, it texts me or it doesn't. So I moved away from Signal when it dropped the SMS support. I I I have a, a Signal account. I use Signal with a few people. Um, the, so. The answer to your question is yes, Signal is secure. It's end-to-end -end encrypted, so that means the keys are only on your device and their device. In a way, that means you don't have to trust the server. The real problem with services like Signal are there's a central point of failure. It isn't federated. And so if Signal ever shuts down, your perfectly good secure messaging is going to go away, and the people that you're communicating with, you're potentially going to lose contact with them. It's also unfortunate that I know they're working on this, but at the moment, you still need a phone number. And so it's difficult to make third-party clients. If they shut down the signal servers, you're going to lose contact with all of your friends. And if they don't have a phone number, you're not talking to them on signal anyway. And as our society moves increasingly away from phone numbers, I just don't think the model scales. So if you wanted the same double-ratchet encryption algorithm that you would get with signal, you could use something like Matrix. Or you could hack it onto something like XMPP. There are add-ons to do stuff like that. News from the Newswire. JT standing by. Here he is. From the Linux Newswire newsroom, this is the Week in Review with JT. For the week of October 29th, 2023, here's the Linux and open source news. MySQL 8.2 has been released. GNOME 45.1 is out. Stratus 3.6 has been released by Red Hat. Linux Mint 21.3 will feature experimental Wayland support in its upcoming December release. And Linux 6.6 .6 has been released and brings a new scheduler, new file sharing, and new security updates. In security news, a powerful piece of malware has been disguising itself as a trivial cryptocurrency miner to help evade its detection for more than five years. According to the antivirus provider Kapersky, this so-called striped fly malware has infected over 1 million Windows and Linux computers around the globe since 2016. In open source AI news, this week, Lion, the nonprofit building image and text datasets for training generative AI, including Stable Diffusion, has announced the Open Empathic Project. Open Empathic aims to equip open source AI systems with empathy and emotional intelligence, according to the group. Through Open Empathic, Lion is recruiting volunteers to submit audio clips to a database that can be used to create AI, including chatbots and text to speech modules that understand human emotions. Meta's AI research head wants open source licensing to change to better address the needs and risks of AI. The Department of Commerce is going to undertake key responsibilities through a new artificial intelligence executive order. Alan Davidson, the Assistant Secretary of Commerce for Communications and Information and the Administrator of the NTIA said, at NTIA, we are keenly interested in the power and promise of open source AI systems. These systems have the power to unleash innovation across the country, placing accessible AI tools in the hands of startups, researchers, and individuals but they also pose unique risks in terms of potential misuse and harm. As part of our work in the executive order, we will assess how to move forward with open source AI systems in a way that is accountable and responsible. And lastly, the OpenSUSE community is pleased to announce a logo competition for the new OpenSUSE logo, as well as four OpenSUSE distributions, Tumbleweed, Leap, Slow Roll, and Culpa. Steve, you've been playing with a couple of projects this week that have caught your attention. They're making your life easier, and you're willing to share them. So 
the first one I've been using for a while. It's just a node in Node-RED called Light Transition. And the reason why this is useful is because in Home Assistant um, and in Node-RED, there, there is a setting that's a, that will tell your smart devices to transition from one state to another over a certain period of time, which can be also used for um, fading and stuff like that. However, not all devices respect this uh, setting. And so what ultimately ends up working is this light transition node is a, a, a person on the internet was kind enough to actually create a node that essentially mocks that out and you give it an increment and it will, you know, it, so you specify a time range like, hey, over the next 30 minutes in a 2% increment, do this thing. And that has been incredibly useful. I went to look to find a, like to see if they had a buy me a coffee or any of that sort of stuff. And mm -hmm. I couldn't find one. So I thought I would throw some uh, attention their way. Just a public thank you. I appreciate I appreciate the work that was done. And uh, I thought I'd share that with other people. So it's called Light-Transition for Node-RED. Very cool. Now, you and I were talking on Friday and you had mentioned a little tool for stitching markdown documents together. Yeah, so I came across this um, project out there called Stitch MD, and ultimately I'm trying to develop documentation as code so that I can say import specific sections. So let's say I'm doing documentation on a given project. In this case, uh, I had a work assignment saying, go document how to do something in Quay, which is a registry, like a container registry. Mm -hmm. You can interact via the UI or via the command line. And so where this became useful to me is, as you can imagine, there's a duplication of information that you might have. Like you might have to put the same level of information in both the UI and the CLI. And so instead of maintaining that in different places or whatever, uh, what Stitch MD allows you to do is have individual markdown files and then simply specify the order in which you want them to be displayed. And then it kicks you out a, uh, a regenerated markdown file. And so I find that particularly useful for large documents and stuff like that, because it allows you to split a large document into multiple documents. So I know someone out there is screaming, what about Pandoc? <laughs> uh, so Pandoc is, is a thing that can be used to do a similar function. Although to my knowledge, it doesn't support markdown as part, it supports things like ADOC and a few other things. So it's not exactly a one-to-one -one, whereas stitch MD, it's just, it's simple. It, it works. And I, I really appreciated the project. I tell you what, at this point in my life, you'd have to drag markdown from me with my cold dead fingers. That's been probably the most, maybe the most useful skill. I've ever learned. I've learned to be a web developer, a, a documentation expert, a document generator, a project. I mean, all these things you need to do with one with one skill set. Absolutely unbelievable. Project Bluefin. So, Steve, you and I have had a number of different discussions on uh, ephemeral OSs, and so this idea that the OS just kind of lives there and and breaks down. As funny, I have an interesting story. I was I was we were driving to Linux Fest Northwest. And Jeff uh, is, is a friend of mine who has a Steam Deck. And he was telling me about how great the, 
Steam offers the ability to reflash the OS and how easy they make it to upgrade and took the thing apart and showed me how to upgrade the drive and all that. And I thought that's really cool, but it crashed on him while he was, you know, in the middle of updates. And one of the things that Valve just got right, and if you would have told me this is what their plan was and I was sitting in a boardroom, I'd be like, this is a terrible idea. We should not do it this way. This is going to cause all sorts of problems. But the operating system is ephemeral. It doesn't exist. There's no way to really permanently make changes until they push out an update, in which case then it overwrites it. But all of your changes kind of sit on a layer on top of that. And it makes being able to recover from disastrous situations, sometimes you don't even know what you did, amazing. Project Bluefin is taking that same concept and they're building essentially a distro for developers, for gamers, for anybody that wants a very specific environment to work in. And I understand you do most of your work in Python, so Python and Go, and that, that probably works on just about anything, but you can see some real value for this if you were working in some more esoteric environments. Not just esoteric, but like Ruby on Rails can be a bit of a, a, a lift to set up for the first time and stuff like that. And it's it's nice to be able to not pollute your system files and stuff like that. So even, even in Python, while Python has VMs and stuff like that, I could see there being a use for it because essentially it allows you to um, create an environment that is completely enclosed that you don't have to worry about spilling over into your main uh, in your into your main system and polluting it. So I think that uh, that is particularly of interest to me. And I think that it's I, you and I listened to their their promotional video and I found them quite humorous. So <laughs> I think that that's a little mark in their favor, too. Now, now I'm intrigued enough to go at least give it a download. But this is the way both you and I are going for doing systems for friends and family, because it just makes it makes administration easier. It makes troubleshooting easier and it makes sure that the user can't really hurt themselves. And so I invite you to check it out. You can learn more at Project Bluefin, projectbluefin.io. Hey, coming up tomorrow, I am going to be getting on a plane and taking a 15 hour flight to Riga, Latvia. The idea, Ubuntu Summit. And Ubuntu Summit, if you're not familiar with it, is the a conference where that Canonical puts on uh, around Ubuntu for an opportunity for people to share their experience and stories and to showcase the projects and, and products that they're working on, and then just be able to mingle and hang out with people and enjoy the energy of the summit. So this year, they're going to have eight distinct tracks, community, security, AI and, and machine learning, as well as serious IT infrastructure and serious desktop gaming. And so I'll be out there. I'll be doing some coverage of the event. Um, I'm excited to meet anybody. Uh, come say hi. Come have dinner with us. All of these events, there's always the opportunity to sit down between uh, in front of people that are smarter than you and have more experience than you and be able to share and exchange ideas. And sometimes you have the most interesting conversations. So Linux Fest Northwest, just a week ago, I was sitting at dinner and I met this guy and he tells me, no, I didn't know I was using Linux when I was in the military, but I was using Linux. And he proceeds to tell me the story about working on a submarine and all of the Linux that was there for all of the control systems and how cool it was and how he was responsible for maintaining the machines and doing all of the maintenance and making sure that everything worked down to soldering because sometimes that's what the job calls for. And it, it's those kinds of unique experiences that that isn't in a blog post that isn't in, you know, a video. Nobody had has a podcast about that, but 
those are valuable, impactful stories and people that are doing real things in the world with Linux that are making a, a big change. And I think Canonical has done a lot for specifically the desktop Linux community, but also making Linux mainstream and approachable to humans. And so one of the, I'm going to be giving a talk out there on the do everything Ubuntu box. And effectively what I did was I took all of the technologies that we're using at AltaSpeed to provide services to clients. And I said, okay, I'm going to take those plus the little entertainment value that I have at my house and all of the various different VMs and containers that are making my life function there. And I want to put it all onto one box and I want to be able to take it with me everywhere I go. So regardless of what the internet of things is doing, regardless of what the internet is doing, all of my infrastructure comes with me everywhere I need it. And that has been about a three year making, trying and various different things and probably some stupid things and making a couple of mistakes along the way. And I'm going to share that journey at Ubuntu Summit. If it's recorded, of course, we'll release the episodes. And of course, if we run into an opportunity to have some of those conversations and some people are willing to step up and be on mic, we'd love to have, we'd love to interview, we'd love to chat with you, and we'd love to bring those conversations to you. So Ubuntu Summit, it the conference is this next upcoming weekend, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. I'll be leaving tomorrow because it's a 15-hour flight there, and then it's a 15-hour travel back home. Uh, so Monday and Wednesday will be travel days, but should get in there Thursday and be ready to rock and roll come Friday. So if you're in Latvia or planning on attending the summit, please come say hi. Music in our ears means we're out of time. I thank you for joining us. We record the show every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. You can learn more by heading over to podcast.asknoahshow. What's there, you ask? All the show notes are there. We have all the articles and references that we use to make the show. You have any idea how much material we didn't get to tonight? Might get to it next week. Or maybe it'll just hang out in that show doc. And the only people that'll see it are the people that head over to podcast.asknoahshow.com. The best way to enjoy the show is live, recorded every Tuesday, 6 p.m. Central. We'll be back next week at NoahShow.com. Have a good week. Have a good week.